You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 3 and 4 today. And we're dealing with a short series here out of Philippians 2 on the issue of unity. And uh, yesterday, uh, myself and Corey McKenzie and Pam Wells were part of a uh, Franklin Baptist Associational training event here in, in Frankfurt. And there were several different breakout sessions that we could go to and receive some equipping and some training and some ideas and so forth. And um, I went to one uh, that on the, the bulletin part or the, the announcement part said, Soul Care and the Future of the Church. Um, and most all of this was uh, in, a, in an arena of understanding that church looks much differently now than it did a year and a half ago and, and how we go about sort of resetting and reengaging. So when I read the title of it, um, I thought that the breakout session was going to be for a pastor to learn and glean information from other pastors as well as the person who was leading the session on how to care for the souls of the members of the church. That was my understanding of it. Um, I got there, and what it actually was, was how the pastor should care for his own soul in the midst of all this time, which is not a bad thing either, right? Uh, But it just wasn't what I'd planned on. But I was glad I was there. Because I listened as there were about seven pastors in that, in that breakout session from various churches here in Franklin County. And I listened as they all expressed the pain of the last year and a half. And, and not, not just the pain of what we've had to go through as a culture, but, but the pain of what has transpired in each of their churches People getting mad because they want to wear a mask. People getting mad because they don't want them to wear a mask. People getting mad because they say they ought to take the vaccine. People getting mad because they say they shouldn't take the vaccine. People getting mad because they went to multiple services to spread people out. People getting mad because they didn't go to multiple services to spread people out. I've got one really good friend who said that he had a couple families leave because they felt like he wasn't paying enough attention or or instructing the church on helping the church to realize that God has broken down racial barriers in our culture and through Jesus. And so they left because they were mad about that. And, And as a response to that, he planned a series a few months later to talk about how Jesus has broken down things like racial barriers. And two families left because he talked about it. The church lacks unity. And the story is the same over and over across denominational lines, big mega churches down to small little rural churches that are barely keeping the lights on with 10 or 15 people. The church lacks unity. And we've got to understand that when we look like the divided world around us, there's nothing attractive about that. There's nothing attractive about the gospel of Christ when those who claim to be changed by the gospel of Christ are not acting as if the gospel of Christ has actually changed us. And so this message, not only today, but through the rest of these weeks in this series, is so important for us. And it was reinforced to me yesterday how important it is for the church. Because if we don't get this one right, we may be damaging a witness that 
is irreversible in this culture. It's imperative that we do this. Today is Lessons in Unity 2, and a subset or a subtitle for today's message is an orientation toward others. Orientation is a word that's used normally in, in a couple of ways. One is you join an organization or you go to work for a new company or, or even as a church, we have what we call a new member orientation that we offer. And it, it's just a, a, an orientation segment to help people understand that this is who we are and, and this is our goal and this is how things work. And again, in a business setting, it's the same thing. This is how human resources work. This is how your retirement works, so on and so forth. And it's just to orient people towards uh, a phrase that we might want to say, having everybody on the same page. There's a secondary information or a description for orientation, though, and it's this. A general or lasting direction of thought, inclination, or interest. Meaning it's an orientation that, that changes the way we think about something or, or changes the way that our interests are. Or, and, and, it, and it's something that just doesn't come and go. It's something that lasts. So if, you, if you've ever been lost in the woods, right? And, or if you grew up as a kid being in the woods with your dad or granddad or somebody else and they might have said things to you like, if you ever feel, you're, feel like you're lost, orient yourselves to what? Anybody know? Particularly if it's nighttime, the North Star. Orient yourselves to north or learn where the moss grows on the trees so it tells you which direction you're traveling or those kinds of things. You want to orient yourself so you know what direction you're going. Um, in terms of interests, if you, if you were to have a conversation with me about music and, and ask me what kind of music and, and the versions and, and how I like to listen to it, I'm going to tell you my orientation right now is towards listening to vinyl records rather than digital because vinyl sounds a whole lot better. It's, 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 what it, it's what it does for us to direct us or to have our intent or our focus on. And it's that position of orientation that we want to talk about here with verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2 as we continue to talk about unity. So let's look at verse 3 for our first point today. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Last week in, in verse 1, we saw this toolkit, these things that we have from Jesus. And we said that the toolkit in verse 1 leads us to verse 2, which is the goal, which is the unity of the church. And so Paul continues to expand on it here, and he expands on, on the issue of humility. And so your first point today is this, that humility raises others up, not me. Humility raises others up. Not me. Humility in the ancient world, humility particularly in the time of the Greek and Roman dominated culture that Jesus and then the new church was birthed out of, humility was not a virtue one wanted to attain. Humility was seen as weakness. It was seen as a failure. It was seen uh, associated with shame and defeat. Everything about this idea of humility as a virtue in Jesus' day and in the, the day of the new church was associated with something that was negative. Personal honor and personal reputation and, yes, even personal fame was the goal of that culture and particularly was the goal of that culture at the expense of everybody else. So long as you made it, it didn't matter who you stepped on to make it there. 
So long as, as you were well thought of, it didn't matter who was less thought of, as long as you made it there. And that ancient world viewpoint, I believe, even infiltrated the Jewish world. If we consider the number of times that we have in the Gospels, right, where Jesus' disciples or his followers say things like this, oh, you're not going to die. You're not going to go to the cross. You're not going to suffer. That, that, that's a very humble position. I mean, there's, there's nothing more humble than to submit yourself to death on a cross when you've done nothing wrong. You're not going to do that. And, and that, that, that mindset even infiltrated into their world. And, and my, my concern, my fear is that our culture today mirrors what Jesus and that New Testament church, church was birthed out of. In 1993, there was a book written, The Book of Virtues, by a man named William or Bill Bennett. And in it, uh, Bennett served in both the Bush and the Reagan administrations. He served in, in various different capacities within D.C. And uh, in this book, The Ten Virtues, this is the description of this book from the Amazon page. From the Bible to American history, from Greek mythology to English poetry, from fairy tales to modern fiction, these stories are a rich mine of moral literacy, a reliable moral reference point that will help anchor our children and ourselves in our culture, our history, and our traditions, which are the sources of the ideals by which we wish to live our lives. Now, why did I read that description to you? Because in this book of 10 virtues, which was at its time in the early 90s, lauded as one of the greatest resources that both schools and families could use to ground their children in the virtues they needed to succeed, humility was not listed among them. Now, in, in Bennett's defense, he doesn't say anywhere in the book, these are the only 10 virtues. But understand that for a description of a book to start off with from the resources this person has gleaned from, the first one mentioned is the Bible. And the manner in which the Bible talks about the humility of Christ and the humility of his disciples and the humility of the church and those who follow him, how they're supposed to mirror and exemplify that humility. For humility to not be in the top ten of a book about virtue is a tragedy. Paul's words here are just as vital now as they were in that first century. He starts with the don't. Do nothing, he says, verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is a phrase that may look to us to be a very individualistic thing, but the phrase, the two-word phrase there is really a phrase that means don't do anything from the party line. Don't do anything from the group dynamic. In other words, don't, don't strive to do something, Paul says, within the church at Philippi and within the church at Providence and everywhere else in between. Don't strive to do something uh, with the intent of creating division and factions. We know that in Philippians 4, he talks about two women at the very beginning of Philippians 4, two women who had co-labored with him for the gospel. And apparently there was some kind of division, some kind of feud, some kind of disagreement. We don't know what it was. It really isn't important that we know what it was. But there was something going on between these two co-workers for the gospel of Paul. 
And in Philippians 4, he talks about the fact that they need to be helped. Uh, the implication there is they need to be helped to reach an agreement. The fact that those two are mentioned in 4 and that he uses here in verse 3 of chapter 2 a phrase that talks about groups, basically, tells me that in the church of Philippi there were combative groups against one another. Probably what had happened is one had taken one woman's side and one had taken the other woman's side and maybe even a third group didn't take either of their sides and wanted all the other groups to be booted out. He says don't do anything out of this selfish ambition. Don't do anything out of this conceit. That is a word that leans to an individual understanding. And the, the point of putting the two together is Paul saying, don't do anything out of the party line, out of the group dynamic, in an effort to raise yourself up to be numero uno. These things, when we have these situations where we do things from group dynamics, instead of being a unified group ourselves, what they do is they create different goals within the church. One group has this goal, another group has this goal, a third group has these goals, have these goals. And for the church, our goal should be one goal, that Christ is made much of, that the kingdom is proclaimed and lived out, that the truth of the word must be shared and lovingly uh, distributed among those who need to hear it. We should have one goal, but when we are doing things from selfish ambition, when we are doing things from conceit, it destroys that opportunity. So that's the don't. Don't do things this way. Then he gives us the do. But in humility, second part of verse 3, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He gives us first the condition that's needed to move past what's going on and to become unified in the church. And he says that condition is humility. Humility is not letting yourself be a doormat. Humility is not letting everybody win and you never win. <laughs> humility is not about putting yourself down or devaluing yourself necessarily. Humility is more about honestly valuing and honestly assessing ourselves. And then as we do so, then considering others... And then raising them up, counting them as more significant. I, I thought back to Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount when I was reading through this and studying through this this week. That, that, that part in Matthew 7 where he talks about judging, where everybody wants to say, see, it says don't judge. That's not what it says. It says don't judge until you've examined yourself in humility. It says don't judge until you've looked for the, the log in your eye before you take a speck out of somebody else's. And the issue Jesus is teaching of there is a, is a lesson, an issue of humility. That before I cast judgment on someone else, I honestly value or assess myself and see my own condition. It's not a weak man's surrender. It's a strong man's rejection of selfishness. To walk in humility. And when we do that and we enter that humble state, the second part of that action then is this. Count others more significant than yourselves. To count others is to give careful consideration to, careful thought to. Um, I'll give you an example where it's used in a different sense, but that maybe that'll help us understand this. In James 1, 2 through 4, James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James uses the same terminology there. Count it all joy. Consider it. Give it deep thought. Give it deep introspection when you have trials. Because you know that what's going to come out of those trials is steadfastness, which is going to produce a good work in you. It's the same thing he's saying here. Count others. Consider others. Give careful consideration and thought to others. And humility moves us to not raise ourselves up, but humility moves us to consider others of greater value and importance. Humility should move us to deflect praise and to deflect honor and redirect it to others and ultimately all of us redirecting it to God. That we do so as Jesus has done so. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 22, beginning in verse 25, uh, they've had the Lord's Supper and uh, the disciples have begun to argue among themselves who's the greatest, which by the way, they did this several times in the gospels. And Jesus responds to them, Luke twenty-two twenty-five: the kings of Gentiles exercised lordship over them, meaning over the Gentiles. And those in the authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Let the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? And be reminded here, they had just gone through the Lord's Supper. And they didn't sit around the table like you and I sit around the table. You reclined on your side. You, you laid on the floor and reclined and you ate. And, and so there would be servants who would come when a person was eating that way. And he says, who's the greatest, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says, I am the one among you who is deflecting the honor, who is deflecting the praise, who is deflecting the accolades. I am the one among you who's not demanding a place or a position or a title. I am the one among you who is serving. He says, I am the one among you who is being humble. In the next few verses, when we get to next week, we're going to see further understanding of this, that he was so humble that he didn't even consider his equality with God something to hold on to while he was on this earth. But he humbly went to the cross. We'll see that next week. It says, count others more significant to yourselves. Now, that word others is a reciprocal word, meaning that we are all to be doing this to one another. Because when you talk about humility and you talk about not, not raising yourself up and not giving yourself a position or a title or status or whatever else, inevitably the human sinfulness flesh of us go, well, where's going to be my attaboys? Where are my attaboys going to come from? And, and understand this, everybody loves an attaboy and everybody deserves an attaboy. And I understand that. But if we take to heart what Paul's writing and we are counting others more significant, we ought to be getting attaboys from one another for all the things we're doing. It's not up to one person to give out an attaboy. It's for all of us to be encouraging each other in that way. And just as a side note, if you never get an earthly attaboy, there is a God in heaven who is keeping the books. 
There's a God in heaven who has a reward for you who are in him that far supersedes any earthly reward or attaboy you could ever receive. We count others. We reciprocate that to one another. You can't lose when you help others win. You can't lose when you help others win. So verse 4, our second point then, humility moves us to look at or to look to, either way, others. Humility moves us to look at or to look to others. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's actually not a Greek word here for the English word interest. It's, a, it's what they call a filler word. It means it's an English word that's been put into our scriptures to uh, help us try to make sense of what's being written. Really, the Greek kind of just says this, let each of you look at yourselves and at others. And so within that word look is this idea of looking at yourself, your things, your interests, your hopes, your dreams, and then looking at others in the same way. But really it's not in the same way because look at verse 4. Let each of you not look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Notice it doesn't say give up your interests. But it says to look to the interest of others as well. It's a, it's, a, it's a way Paul writes it in that we put your interest on par with mine. You put my interest on par with yours. And the reality of it is that that happens when we all have a common goal. But so long as our goals are different... So long as our goals are divided, so long as our goals are thousands of different directions, we can never sincerely put one another on that same level. So here, interest could be all sorts of things. It could be what you're personally interested in. It could be your personal preferences. It could even be things that we sometimes call personal rights. And it's put the other persons on the same level as yours. I recently got some uh, demographic information about our area around church. It's something that I'm going to be going over uh, with some folks in the next month as we begin to think through 2022 and, and how we want to plan and how we want to budget and some things we want to do. And one of the things that I loved about it was uh, within a five-mile radius of this church, it was about an equal number in the community of those who like very traditional worship and those who lean more contemporary in their worship and I loved reading that because I thought we strive to offer a worship segment where both groups are met but understand we don't strive to offer that worship segment so you get your way we strive to offer that segment so that in whatever your personal preference or interest is you have opportunity in this Sunday morning service to give back your praise and worship to God it's deflecting it's it's giving him back what he is due and I love that when I saw that it, it, it gave me a gave me a hope for us that that at least in that area of the community I think we're doing a good thing in terms of what it means to reach out to people but when we take those preferences, we take those interests, we take those things, and we begin to come divided over them, then again, we don't present ourselves as something 
with the attractional beauty of Christ. And so the issue for us is not as we look to do this, as we look in humility, again, to not only look to our own interests, but also the interest of others. The issue for us is not how we separate over these interests or these differences, but how we come together over them. It's easy to take your ball and go home. It's easy to separate. It takes deep, sincere love to work out through the things. And the way we work out through the things, the way every church needs to work out through the things, is to say that all the things inevitably should be leading to that we make much of Jesus Christ, we make much of the kingdom of God, we make much of the truth of God's word, and we make much of the power and the presence of His Spirit. And when that is the goal, we can unite in love and in humility. Now, I want to make a side note here. We're not talking here about key issues of Christian doctrine or faith or belief. If I was to stand up here on a Sunday and start preaching that Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin or he didn't actually die on the cross, he just kind of swooned away and, and, or, or he didn't really rise from the dead, they broke in through a back way in the cave and took his body, I w- you would have every right and should have every right to say, uh-uh, we're not dealing with that in this church. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about all the things, all the interests, all the the things that make us who we are and elevating them so we are on a common page, a common level for the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And at the core of all of this, of course, is this idea of humility. Again, earlier noted, it, it wasn't a virtue people wanted in Jesus' day. I don't think it's a virtue most people want today. I think most people in our culture think of humility as being weak and being, being a doormat and being run over and never getting their way. And so we're going we're gonna to bull up and we're going to swell up and we're going to make sure that nobody takes from us what we say is ours. Jesus led a revolution of humility and the writings of the scriptures reinforce it at every turn. You want to be great? Be the least. You want to lead? Serve. You want the places of honor? Choose the places of the least honor. Let someone else promote you. Paul said God so wanted to keep him humble that he gave him a thorn in the flesh. That he would only rely upon God's grace to get through it. Not that he would go back and look at what he had done in his Christian life and say, Oh, I've done this and I've done this and I've started this church and I endured these beatings and everything else. To keep him humble, to keep him from being prideful, God gave him this thorn in the flesh to keep him grounded. James wrote, God opposes the proud but gives more grace to the humble. Peter stated in his letter in 1 Peter 5 that to the persons responsible for shepherding the church and to the church itself, that they were to clothe themselves with humility and let God lift them in his timing. Clothe ourselves in humility and let God lift us. What does it mean to to lift us or to exalt us? It means to to lift to prosperity, to lift to fame, to lift to honor, to lift to a a dignity, to lift to happiness. It's a wide, wide meaning word, but the point of it is this. 
We don't seek to put ourselves in those places, but we clothe ourselves with humility. And we allow God to do it in his way and his timing. If you're interested outside of the Bible and in learning more about this humility, Andrew Murray has a very small but very powerful work simply titled Humility. And I want to share two quotes from there today as we begin to begin to close. He writes, In the life of earnest Christians, of those who pursue and profess holiness, humility ought to be the chief mark of their uprightness. And he says this in one of the other chapters. Is this not what Jesus taught? And he's referring to Luke 22, I read from a moment ago. When the disciples disputed who should be the greatest, when he saw how the Pharisees loved the chief place at the feast and the chief seats in the synagogues, when he had given them the example of washing their feet, he taught his lessons of humility. Humility before God is nothing if not proved in humility before men. It's easy to be humble in the presence of God. It takes love to be humble in the presence of men. Some may be smarter, some may be more talented, some may hold positions of employment or of power, but the spiritual ground is level at the cross of Jesus Christ. And unity is birthed from our humility before God and our humility before one another. We should be, by the very virtue and the fact of God's grace for us, astonished into humility that God would do what he has done for the likes of me. The way Paul writes it, you know this, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Christ didn't come and say, okay, now if everybody will do these five steps to make yourself better, then I'll go to the cross. He said, while you're enemies, while you are hatred, your hatred of God and your hatred of all things God and your hatred of what God's going to ask you to do and the hatred of His holiness, while we were that, He died on a cross for us. Let that astonish us into humility. And then let that humility propel us into a mindset for others that we might make Jesus and His gospel and His kingdom attractive. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.